0: Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project. I'm Betsy Anderson, WJP's Executive Director, and today's host of a conversation with Tom Ginsburg, a noted international law expert. Our topic is democracy and what protects this form of governance from countervailing authoritarian forces. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to Rule of Law Talk for more vital conversations like this one. In recent years, the world has witnessed worrying patterns of many democracies shifting toward authoritarianism. We see it in WJP's Rule of Law Index, which in 2017 saw a majority of countries decline in rule of law, particularly with respect to constraints on executive power and protection of fundamental rights. To help us understand what's going on and what can be done about it, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Tom Ginsburg the Leo Spitz Professor of International Law, Ludwig and Hilda Wolff Research Scholar, and Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Together with his co-author, Aziz Hook, Professor Ginsburg has just published a terrific new book entitled How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. The book takes a a look at the trends we are seeing in democratic governance around the world and drawing on comparative constitutional and political analysis, it provides insights into the elements of institutional design that can make a difference in the face of an authoritarian onslaught. Tom, welcome to Rule of Law Talk.
1: Thanks so much, Betsy. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Let me um, just start our conversation by asking you what inspired you to write this book.
1: Great. Well, I, of course, have been uh, concerned for many years about uh, what institutional features promote democracy or hurt it. Uh, But the immediate inspiration actually was the election of November 2016 in the United States, uh, which, you know, led us to think that these trends that we'd been observing around the world might uh, indeed have some relevance for for us in America. Um, It's not really a book about Trump, I have to say. It's a book about the broader structural forces which have been eroding democracies, both new and established around the world, And uh, to ask the question about whether or not the United States is vulnerable, to answer that question affirmatively, and then to think about what we can do, uh, what steps we can take to prevent uh, democracy from declining here.
0: Well, it's a timely book uh, for sure. And uh, maybe we can begin by uh, talking a little bit about the paths that you and your co author have identified for how countries travel from democracy to authoritarianism.
1: Yes. Now, in our kind of imagination for how democracies die, uh, the conventional sort of understanding is a democracy ends through a sudden collapse, if you will, a coup d'etat or a revolution or some such thing. And in fact, in recent years, and we show actually uh, throughout history, that's not actually the, the modal way that democracies die. We distinguish between collapses and what we call erosion which is the slow kind of death by a thousand cuts, where you have a bunch of institutional changes, which each one on their own might not seem to be a big threat to democratic performance. But when you add them up, they really can lead to the degradation, the severe degradation, and even the end of democratic governance. So we really focus on this issue of erosion, which we think is the only real threat in the United States today. Uh, You know, The United States democracy is not going to end or collapse. Uh, But it is, and some would say um, already has, eroded in some significant ways.
0: And what are the trends you see around the world in terms of that erosion? Are you seeing the same thing that we're picking up in the rule of law index of kind of uh, increasing number of countries slipping away from democracy?
1: That's right. We're seeing, again, kind of slow erosion in democratic quality, slow erosion in the rule of law, which we think, by the way, is a fundamental feature of democracy in our definition, um, and attacks on sort of fundamental rights that are also necessary for the rule of law and democracy to function. Things like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, civil society is under attack in many countries around the world through new legal requirements, Uh, Free media is under attack in many countries around the world in various ways, not just legal but uh, physical violence directed at journalists and such. And so we are um, really observing a kind of spread of the techniques of erosion around the world just as we witnessed a kind of wave of democracy in which kind of ideas spread across borders. Now we're witnessing a kind of counter wave of ideas and techniques that are used to pressure democracy, being sp- spread from country to country, um, and you know we talk a lot about what those are. Some of them are involve, um, uh, for example, the use of libel law by government to close the space for open discourse. Uh, again, physical attacks on journalists, registration requirements for civil society, pressure on universities, manipulation of elections, uh, and so on, and. remarkable thing from our point of view is how many of these mechanisms are pursued through law. That is, the law is not just uh, an instrument of openness for societies, but can be used, of course, as a tool for repression and constraining uh, public space. And that's really makes it, I think, important for lawyers and political scientists and others who are interested in this to work together in a kind of interdisciplinary way
0: yeah, that's certainly a challenge for an organization like WJP. We see what some have characterized as a weaponization of law, and it's uh, it's it's a stealth approach, of course, um, and very challenging because each each of these steps can be characterized as as legal, as even an expression of the rule of law rather than countering rule of law. It's hard to hard to really see how we can respond to that.
1: right. Uh, and many of the things that we as a community have been promoting uh, things like uh, you know well judicial power, judicial independence and such obviously can be turned around um, in service of repression and regression. And uh, so that you know requires us to think hard about exactly you know what substantive values we want in the law, uh, a kind of thicker notion of the rule of law than the traditional one and this is of course one, area in which I commend the WJP for recognizing that the rule of law is a multifaceted phenomenon and has uh, a lot of different aspects. And we really need to kind of look at each of those, um, well, obviously together, but we can look at them discreetly as well.
0: Right. Maybe you can give us a – we can dig into one or two particular case studies of this kind of democratic erosion and we can get a sense of what it looks like in, in as it unfolds and in practice?
1: Sure. I mean, there's been a lot of attention to Hungary around the world, and I think it's a pretty good case. Um, you had a single election won by uh, um, uh, Viktor Orban's party, Fidesz, in 2011 in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So, you know, crises, that tells us one thing, that crises, economic challenges pose a fertile environment for illiberal actors to kind of take over. Uh, but the critical steps were then taken through law after that election. And I note that Viktor Orban is a lawyer, um, as Putin is a lawyer, and uh, Kaczynski in Poland is a lawyer. The lawyer, lawyers you know, understand the power of law to dismantle democracy if that's what you want to do. Um, so what steps did they take? Well, they've obviously um, first secured electoral reforms that lock in their power for uh, probably for the foreseeable future. Um, then they set about attacking sources of opposition in civil society, the media, um, uh, attacks on the Central European University and personal attacks on George Soros as a kind of uh, you know, foreign fellow who was interfering with uh, Hungary, Hungary's true values. The idea that rights you know, shouldn't belong to minorities but that the majority has rights too which in some sense sort of undermines the very idea of what rights are. Um, And so a kind of popular discourse that squeezes civil society, that doesn't involve the outright, you know, arrest of and disappearance of opponents, but certainly constrains the possibility of electoral turnover and um, accountability. Um, You know, techniques that are used – in many countries reflect the kind of local structure. We in the United States you know, don't realize that the media in many, many countries is really quite concentrated and quite vulnerable uh, to things like changes in government advertising budgets. If the government decides it's not going to advertise with your station, well, that can be critical for um, uh, media companies in certain countries. And so you can kind of Through that, if you're the government, you know, force out or force changes in ownership to get more friendly voices controlling public discourse. Um, And finally, of course, there's the control of the courts, which in Hungary involved the replacement of the constitutional court, a new constitutional reform that voided all the prior jurisprudence of the constitutional court, which had received much attention from comparative lawyers in the 90s and early 2000s. It was all voided with a single, single act. And so you're sort of repopulating the constitutional law environment from scratch. Um, all of these things working just one step at a time, each one on its own. You might say, well, it's not such a big deal. When you add them up, it's led to a serious degradation of Hungary's democracy.
0: How do you identify the, the point along that path where you've gone from democracy to authoritarian governance?
1: Right. So that's a great question and one on in which, you know, Political scientists who study these things differ. Um, you know, there's a kind of notion in the literature that there's some, some bright line that you cross and then you're no longer a democracy. Uh, the current sort of set of strategies makes that very fuzzy and so it's very hard to know and that's part of its success. You can well say, I still have this democratic institution. We're still having elections. We're still having, uh, you know, the possibility of filing lawsuits, for example. Um, but and and, you know but and so we're still a democracy and such Um, there's a very interesting project that i commend um, called bright line watch that's run by a number of political scientists where what they do is they ask the american public about 20 different dimensions of democratic performance here in the united states and they've been had several rounds of surveys where they ask um, you know what is the what's the state of American democracy on these dimensions? And you know, I guess the 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 name Bright Line Watch comes from the idea that you know at some point, what def- the way democracy is protected is everyone realizing that it's at risk, and so by helping to identify critical moments when we've seen degradation, I think that they help they're hoping to help encourage mobilization. Around these issues here in the United States, but basically the definitional question is really a hard one and different measures uh, you know rate countries differently in this ambiguous middle space between uh, democracy and dictatorship
0: very, very interesting and tricky for sure. Um, one of the things that was striking uh, to me in, in your book I mean, we've heard a lot in the news about the case of Poland and Hungary and Turkey, uh, really remarkable steps back from from democracy in those places but you also look at some other cases that folks may be less familiar with japan and israel where you see some of these trends unfolding tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah right and so in both countries we're responding actually to voices that have been uh, raised within those countries so it's not so much an external uh you know assessment but um um, giving voice to some of the criticisms. So in Israel, there's a major debate over the status of the Supreme Court and, you know, did the Supreme Court go too far in getting involved in governance? Uh, has it been sufficiently reined in? Um, but the things we focus more on with regard to advanced democracies like Israel and Japan have to do with the um, organization of civil society. So there have been sort of new registration requirements put on NGOs, Um In Israel, there's been some criticism over the new nation-state law that the Israeli government passed, which uh, uh, certainly did not go as far as had been proposed um, in terms of um, constraining democratic space. But um, certainly that was also the case because there were voices who were watching it and spoke up to, to water it down, if you will in the political process. In Japan, uh, there's a new anti-terrorism bill now a couple of years old in preparation for the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. Um, and uh, civil libertarians note that it's really overbroad and allows a lot of criticism of the um, – um, uh, a lot of sort of constraints on public discourse, which otherwise might not be the case. Uh, Japan and Israel are not cases where we observe you know, necessarily a charismatic leader like Viktor Orban or Putin or something, but parties or coalitions that have remained in power for a really long time. And that can lead to the temptation to sort of, you know, defect a little bit on democracy, To just get so used to power that you really don't ever want to give it up. And so you start manipulating the rules of the game to ensure that you never will. Uh, Japan is famous for the malapportionment, which overweights the rural votes, um, and of course has had essentially one political party running it for six or seven decades. It's definitely a democracy. I would not say it was not. But um, it, like the United States, has been moved into the category of what's called a flawed democracy by the Economist Intelligence Unit. It's very interesting. They have a rating of democracy. And from their point of view, both Japan and the United States have degraded to the point where you would say yeah, they're no longer really full democracies they're kind of at the top end of their scale for flawed democracies uh, but each one has suffered particular institutional kinds of erosions which which uh, lead people to identify a threat
0: interesting you you talk a lot about uh, the role that charismatic populism plays in this process describe that for our listeners right
1: so you know we've seen a lot of writing about populism it's a major force around the world today And uh, we want to be clear. We don't think populism on its own is bad. You usually do get populist movements that arise when there's some sort of um, lack of accountability on the part of an elite. And so populism I think has a role to play in accountability. The problem comes – I think we, we have to distinguish between running as a populist and governing as a populist. Um, Running as a populist is about accountability and trying to move policy closer to the views of the people. Um, Governing as a populist typically involves, um, uh, in our view, ultimately the degradation of democracy and tends to be associated with corruption and such. And let me try to explain why. Um, We focus on what this phenomenon, as you say, that we call charismatic populist. Um, A charismatic populist is a leader who has a kind of magic power, if you will, a charisma, in which he or she, but usually he, claims to be speaking directly for the people. That leader claims to intuit what the people want. And the people are conceived of in this view as being not plural, not uh, diverse, but a single homogenous body that speaks with a single homogenous voice through that leader. Um, and this is kind of claim, a political claim that you know I think you're Your listeners will recognize and we see in many, many countries around the world. Now, why is that a threat to democracy? A leader who is claiming to speak for the single people, um, first of all, needs to demonize the opposition in very severe ways uh, because those people are against the people. Um, But secondly, has no need for any intermediate institution between the leader and the people. So you might imagine that the, the uh, you know, institutions like checks and balances, Congress, the courts and such, to the extent that they don't go along with the leader's you know, voice, if you will, um, then they become themselves a threat. Civil society, uh, you know, institutions that sort of exist between the state and the society in some sense are to be treated as a grounds for – or a territory of partisan battle and are only to be legitimate if they go along with this leaders, you know, speaking for the people. So it's really interesting. I think when you look at populists around the world, and you can think about Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, you can think about Orban in Hungary, um, um, you know, they come in – and Erdogan in Turkey. They come in all kinds of varieties, not left, not right, you know. um, They come in all kinds of political styles. What they have in common is they claim to speak for the people – And they try to dismantle intermediate institutions or to sideline them to enhance their power. And, of course, that naturally leads to the point about corruption Uh, because once you've got total control, you and your your cronies, your cabal, um, you know, loot the state. And that's what we also see over and over again. You know, since the time of Huey Long in the United States, it's interesting how populists tend to end in um, corrupt scandal. And... uh, uh, even if they do bring about needed corrections in policy, it often doesn't end well. And so, in my view, we need ways to channel that populist impulse and keep it from being associated with a charismatic, um, you know, the particular fate of a charismatic individual.
0: Fascinating. It's almost as though uh, it's up. It becomes an upside-down world where uh, the the institutions that we consider safeguards of democracy get characterized as anti-democratic. So you get the media being characterized as the enemy of the people, for example. It's uh, very challenging to contend with. One of, the, one of the surprising and disturbing points in your book is that, uh, is that many of the checks and balances that we are taught to rely on uh, and to uphold democracy, at least as a, as, a, um, uh, as a constitutional matter, are weaker than we might think um, and including here in the United States uh, you've reached a conclusion that our our Constitution may not be the as sturdy a, a safeguard as we might expect tell us about that and what you uh, why, why you think that's the case
1: right so one of our themes is that uh, Americans you know tend to think of ourselves as exceptional you know that trends that happen in the rest of the world don't don't matter to us don't affect us and it's a kind of a uh, uh, pretence that we have a uh, wishful thinking. And of course, there are some areas in which we are exceptional. and one of them is the age of our constitution. The oldest constitution in the world, in uh, my comparative constitutions project research, which I uh, am involved in, we define the era of modern constitutionalism as be- beginning with the American Constitution, it's sort of a technology that we invented for national government. Um, and you know, so the age of it is exceptional. And many would say that that, you know, Immunizes us from any kind of threat of backsliding, and one of the things we show and argue in the book is that no, actually, that's not the case. That in many ways the Constitution, both its text and how it's been interpreted, uh, might actually facilitate erosion by um, you know a, a charismatic individual or a party that really wanted to defect on democracy. And so we're um, we're really pretty critical, and we have a kind of whole reform agenda of things that we think would be useful for. Uh, for helping to correct the situation, um, so the checks and balances, of course, is the logic of Madison's design. Madison famously thought that ambition had to be set up to counteract ambition; that institutions would act uh, to defend their own power against other institutions, and you know that thus, if you had enough complex institutions in a system of government, we'd be protected from from tyranny. And you know, it's a brilliant idea. Um, But he was writing about it and he was working on the Constitution in an era before there were political parties. So if you think about it, you know, checks and balances assumes the court and the Congress and the president are going to check each other as institutions. Um, But if you have a single political party that unifies all those branches, well, then the incentive is not to check each other, but in fact, to govern together. Um, and perhaps in an extreme case, this is, you know, not the modal one, but the extreme case to to keep the other side from ever really competing for power. And so, um, you know, checks and balances on their own need to take into account the politics of the situation. And so that's one thing where we think the constitution is a little bit out of date. Um, now, you might say, what then should we do or what what do – how do modern constitutions resolve this problem? you know, if you were to go to uh, a country where they're writing a new constitution today, the Gambia is considering constitutional reform, uh, Tuvalu, tiny Tuvalu in the Pacific, a number of countries in any given year are going to be rewriting constitutions. And, you know, when they do that, they are looking around at the experience of other countries and there's kind of trends that we can see in design. And one of them is um, to have special institutions that are insulated from normal politics just to focus on the accountability task. Um, So in South Africa, they call these Chapter 9 institutions because that's the chapter of the Constitution that they're found in. Um, It would be things like a counter-corruption commission uh, institution in South Africa. They have a called public protector that is very much like an ombudsman. Uh, And by the way, that office was really critical in South Africa in helping to bring about the downfall of Jacob Zuma, Simply by insisting that he pay back the money for that he spent uh, the government money that he spent on his on his own house, uh, and insisting that Parliament uh, actually take that take that report seriously and such, and so these accountability institutions can play a major role in preventing degradation of democracy, in preventing partisan takeover and capture, um, and so I'm 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 really. Uh, a big fan of them, and of course, our Constitution in the United States lacks them completely because it was written before they were really an invention. Um, and so, I think that's something that we ought to think a lot about: is how to constitutionalize or develop accountability institutions that are really protected and insulated from uh, partisan control.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's of course one thing if you're starting with a blank slate and writing a new constitution to uh, slip in some of those those checks. But how would we go about that here in the United States if we thought that was necessary? Our Constitution is notoriously difficult to amend.
1: Right. Um, And uh, so there is a movement out there, I should um, uh, note, to have a new constitutional convention under Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. A lot of people are starting to call for that. Uh, Some of the calls from state legislatures focus just on one issue, a balanced budget amendment. Uh, But... You know, once such a convention is called, who knows what is going to happen, right? It's – you can imagine – Sounds like a
0: Pandora's box, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And of course, the first constitutional convention, you know, they were just brought together to amend the Articles of Confederation. They ended up doing something completely new. So so I think that's kind of a – there might in fact be an opportunity uh, to rewrite the American constitution. But, you know, short of that, um, we think there are a lot of things that could be done to improve the health of American democratic institutions – through statute and through um, things like congressional rules. So for example, you can imagine that Congress could, uh, within each house making its own rules, okay. give more of a role to the opposition party, uh, maybe chairing certain committees or you know having joint action by both a chair and a, a, a minority leader on a particular committees, important committees related to accountability and such. Um, and you know, I think one virtue of that kind of approach, it, it sounds fantastic from the point of view of America today and how polarized we are, but one of the virtues of recognizing the opposition is that you kind of you know, acknowledge that an opposition plays a critical role in a democracy. The opposition's role is to insist on accountability and having some kind of institutions which encourage um, the opposition to play a responsible role in government, to help ensure accountability, would maybe move us a little more towards the center and towards a a situation of partisan cooperation rather than um, intense partisan competition that we're now now experiencing. So that's one thing you could sort of tinker with congressional rules. Statutes, I think, can go a long way to help improve accountability. Um, You know, we have an inspector's general system, which has come up in the news in particular agencies. But, you know, those are really um, you know, just agency employees and protected really only by the norm of non-interference. Um, so I think more statutory protection for inspectors general and in agencies. You could even imagine a kind of a uh, accountability uh, agency that was set up by statute to monitor others. Obviously, we have the GAO and the OMB, but um, I think more could be done to have a core of really well-trained auditors and such to help ensure, uh, government is accountable. And, um, and so I think there's a bunch of statute, statutes and such that could be brought into bear. Um, you know, the Supreme Court also obviously plays a major role in our government function. And, um, you know, there's lots of doctrinal changes that could be brought about. One of the things we talk about in the book is the need for a more diverse pool profession of professional backgrounds mm-hmm. in the judiciary. Um, So there's a bit of a a bias in the federal judiciary in that it's a lot easier to become a judge if you've been a prosecutor than if you've been a public defender. Um, And it's just many more ex-prosecutors than there are public defenders. And so, you know, well, that can't help but shape the jurisprudence, right? We're all informed by our experience. And so trying to insist on a more diverse, not just demographically, but professionally diverse federal judiciary, we think would, uh, would also be a small change that's completely within our capability of achieving, um, but uh, we wouldn't have to have a constitutional amendment. So I don't want to, you know, go through the whole agenda, but the book has a whole list of things that we think can and should be done to help uh, protect American democracy, as well as talking about generic uh, constitutional design for other countries around the world.
0: Right. Interesting. One of the things that struck me is speaking of the judiciary, I maybe as a trained as a lawyer, we, we think about our judicial branch as kind of the fail-safe protection of democracy here in the United States, and yet uh, my sense is you're quite skeptical of the role that judiciaries do play here in the United States and, and around the world.
1: Right. So one of the big Why trends in government uh, over the past few decades is what we in the business call judicialization, the expansion of judicial power to govern all kinds of areas uh, which you know didn't used to be governed by courts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that seems good if you're a, a lawyer and such, um, but, you know, in some sense shows a kind of um, the, the, the dysfunction that's going on in the traditional democratic branches. So whenever I see a country where the courts are making major decisions, it, 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 uh, you know, and, and sort of shutting out uh, the legislature, I think it creates a perverse set of incentives where the legislature can get away without taking tough decisions about governance Um, but also is not really being completely responsive or responsible um, in terms of the way government, you know, should run. And so, you know, the trend towards judicialization, although many of us celebrated it, um, obviously also leads to a lot of things being put on the shoulders of the judiciary, which they may or may not have the capacity to handle and maybe from an ideal sense should not be handling um, in terms of the United States judiciary, we talk a lot about specific, you know, doctrines, constitutional doctrines, and such um, that would actually facilitate, um, uh, you know, democratic erosion if you had a, a sustained attempt to do it. Um, you know, things like qualified immunity, for example, whereby judges are, um, you know, very deferential. They've created a doctrine which makes it really, really hard to recover. If your constitutional rights are violated by a law enforcement officer and um, that's, you know, uh, creates a kind of, you know, moral hazard in, in law enforcement that I think we, you know, many citizens experience um, and, you know, it's, it's a relationship which could be restored I think through judicial doctrines that are, that are, that are less automatically deferential. Um, And, you know, there's many other examples. But I do think the big question, of course, is, you know, what should the role of the courts be in governance? Um, I should say, uh, you know, I think we're in a really bad place as far as this goes. Um, You know, the Kavanaugh hearings uh, sort of highlighted the fact that the court is not just playing a direct role, but it's become a major issue in electoral politics itself. And I don't think that's what the founding fathers intended. I don't think it's healthy for the court and I don't think it's healthy for the democracy. Um, so I'd like to see a lot of reforms to the federal courts, uh, both to expand their capacity to do the jobs they were, they were made to do, but also to tone down the politicization. Um, and um, you know, a lot of other scholars are talking about things one could do to make the Supreme Court less of a political hot potato.
0: Sounds like an important topic for yet a whole nother podcast conversation <laughs> um, just on the judiciary. I want to also ask about the bureaucracy. Um, and we've seen folks refer to the, the professional civil service as potentially a safeguard against uh, democratic erosion. Um, some have characterized that positively, some negatively. Um, what's your take on on the way that the civil service Functions in this context,
1: right? So, you know, a neutral civil service is obviously essential from a democracy for a democracy. For you know, at a minimum, um, for counting the votes and running the elections. If that's a partisan body, well, you don't really have democracy. So, so everyone, no matter what their views are on the administrative state, must recognize that the rule of law in bureaucracy is really, really important, and we don't pay enough attention to that. I don't think, as scholars and certainly not as citizens. Now, um, I think the bureaucracy and kind of a meritocratic civil service is important for another reason too, which is, you know, the ideal of uh, government bureaucrats who follow the instructions of political masters, um, you know, I know that's not always how it works, but the ideal is important because if you're to have a bureaucracy where, you know, you're replacing massive numbers of people every time someone... Takes power, you know. That's a recipe for the end of democracy because no one's ever going to give up power. Uh, just you know, imagine in the United States that if all two million federal employees could be appointed directly by the president every time, every four years, it's not a recipe for good quality bureaucracy, and it's actually not a uh, recipe for democracy because no one would ever give up power once they t- took it. Um, so you know, we think that the bureaucracy has a kind of underappreciated role in terms of the rule of law and democracy. That's not to say that uh, you know, we don't have unaccountable bureaucrats. There's a lot of debate in legal circles about the proper scope of the administrative state, uh, what administrative law tools can be used to ensure accountability. It's something we, we wrestle with a lot in law schools. Um, so I'm not saying that, uh, that the bureaucracy is, is, is a perfect institution. But that ideal, I think, is an important one and one that we ought to, um, to reinforce and not demonize as much as we do.
0: We, we saw in the New York Times uh, recently uh, an anonymous letter from uh, a, a civil servant, um, seems like somebody maybe senior in the administration of the Trump administration, suggesting that uh, he or she, uh, together with others, was uh, working hard to uphold the rule of law against uh Uh, against countervailing forces. What's what's your take on that? Um, Was that a plus or a minus for democracy and rule of law?
1: Well, it was a strange moment. uh, And we don't know if it was a senior senior civil servant or a political appointee. No one knows. um, And of course, the news cycle has now moved on, and so we're on to bigger and better <laughs> things. But certainly a strange moment. It sort of both confirmed uh, the, the discussions of the deep state, which is resisting, you know, political control, but also trying to reassure us at the same time, don't worry. We have it all uh, in line. The bureaucracy is going to take care of things. Don't worry about the president's tweets and things like that. And so uh, a really interesting moment, but it did draw bipartisan condemnation, um, you know, because obviously. No one elected this person, whoever it is, right who elected this person to make the decisions at least with um, democracy there's the possibility of throwing out people for making bad decisions and that's that's not what that uh, email highlighted you know whenever you have bureaucracy, you do have this issue of of accountability as I was saying before, and sort of deep state ideas and you know, that can be good as long as there's kind of a general social consensus on the major policies, right? Uh, yeah, they can be good in the sense that you have a kind of, um, you know, the battleship is kind of moving forward in the place that most people want. We're now at a very politicized moment, very polarized moment, where people have really starkly differing views on, you know, what the scope of the administrative state should be. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that most Americans have really thought much about this issue. Um, You know everyone hates bureaucracy until they need to get something done and then they want it everyone doesn't like government until you know a storm hits or you know fire breaks out and they actually need government and you know i think one of from one of the problems of political discourse for the last couple decades from my point of view has been a demonization of government you know we need government and um if we want to do things collectively we need government to do some things and as long as you accept that assumption, well, then the question should be not is government good or bad, but how do we go about getting an accountable one?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. And your book is, of course, uh, full of, of lots of good ideas about how constitutions, laws, and institutional design can help ensure that. But I, th- I thought it was quite interesting. You also are uh, are uh, intent on on... Uh, and reminding folks that none of that is really a panacea. It's not um, not going to protect us if there is uh, a, a, a constituency or a leader who is determined to uh, shift toward authoritarianism. And so, um, I'm interested in in your thoughts about then what do we do or what, what, what is our fallback if we can't rely on the, on the constitution and the structures?
1: Right. So I guess the way we think about it is, you know, institutions and constitutions and laws are, you know, are really, really important. We're spending our, you know, we spend our lives studying these things and trying to figure out better ways to uh, build the mousetrap as it were. Um, But, you know, anyone who studies institutions knows that nothing, there's no perfect institution and it's all about trade-offs and optimizing, right? across a lot of different parameters. So a lot of our suggestions are really focused on this issue of erosion, and we do think institutions have a role to play. um, But, you know, that doesn't mean that our proposals don't have other costs. So if you think back to Madison, right, you know, checks and balances is designed to prevent tyranny, but it does mean that it's harder to get government to do stuff. So it slows down the possibility of delivering policies when the electorate changes views. And so it's really about optimizing in the specific context of democratic erosion, you know, uh, the way I sometimes say it is only democracy can save democracy. You know, it's not going to, the courts and, and, you know, bureaucrats and, um, you know, nonpartisan institutions are really important. But th- at the end of the day, people have to go out and vote and express their view and convince their fellow citizens of uh, their position. And um, if that, doesn't happen, you know, then, then it's all hopeless. If you have a polity that's really disengaged, that's, you know, not paying attention, well, then it's really provides an opportunity for demagogues and others to, to step in and take over. So, you know, we recognize institutions are simply speed bumps, I guess you'd say that, you know, they can slow down uh, the erosion train, but they can't stop it completely if it's uh, sustained. One of the things we've been looking at um, in an article that's coming out in the Journal of Democracy in a couple of weeks, I think, um, is cases in which democracy was eroding but did not f- fail. So we call these near misses where you kind of have a erosion, an agent of erosion who's trying to take over the system and somehow it was saved. And one of the really interesting things we discovered there is that in many cases, it's institutions which themselves do not have democratic legitimacy – that end up saving democracy. So in Sri Lanka, when uh, Rajapaksa was trying to take over the whole country, and he may yet come back, but um, when he was on his way to a third term, well, there was a defection in his party, and um, Sri Sena, the current president, decided to run against his co-partisan and won the election. Um, But that wasn't enough because that depended on a neutral institution to count the votes, and Rajapaksa apparently tried to you know, manipulate the vote counting. It depended also on the military, which, you know, was not going to come out in the streets to overturn that election. So those are examples of institutions which are, you know, not themselves. They don't have democratic legitimacy, military, bureaucracy, courts, but they're critical for democracy to be saved. And that's why we do think that this um, emphasis on institutional design, on, you know, Drawing good people into into government service, into structuring the institutional relationships, um, is really important because those institutions can allow the democratic processes, parties, and elections and such to play there, to play their role and prevent uh, backsliding from tipping over into true authoritarianism.
0: Very interesting. So maybe we think of of all of these these laws and institutions as tools. Um, but then we also need people leaders to seize them and use them in, in important ways um, to set us on the right track at different critical junctures.
1: That's certainly right. Um, you know, there's no nothing is automatic, and at the end of the day, these are human institutions populated by people, and so you know, things like ethics and uh, and uh, um, you know, having a vision for positive vision for what government can do become really important.
0: Fascinating. Well, I uh, can't recommend the book enough, uh, Tom. I really think it's, uh, it's a tour de force. It is rich in case studies and ideas. And uh, I encourage folks to grab a copy and read it. It's uh, certainly a book for our times. Uh, Thanks very much for joining me today on Rule of Law Talk, and uh, we'll look forward to a future podcast discussion on the judiciary. I think we've got work to do there.
1: That's my next book, I guess.
0: (laughs) Okay. Terrific. Thanks again.
1: Thanks, Betsy.